the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone, and hello, Justin. Hey, Lindsay. You know, it's been, uh, this is another episode where we're doing this remotely, and, um, you know, it had been so long since I'd seen you in person, and we actually got to <laughs> social distance meet last week at the drive-in uh, meet up there and, and watch a movie together, and so that was, uh, it was nice. It was nice to see you. It's. it's I forgot how tall you were. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Really, this this I, pandemic I forgot how is. Much, I forgot how much you liked popcorn. <laughs> oh, that I took it home with yeah. me. Yeah, I did. I took it home with me, and I put it in two separate Tupperwares so it would stay, you know, semi fresh. Yeah. Even though it probably wasn't fresh to start off with. We got to catch up last week, so we won't do too much of it here uh, for our listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do uh, miss everybody. Uh, we hope you're hanging in there, and um, we're hoping that we're continuing to entertain you with uh, our talk of movie discussions and really excited about the movie we picked for this episode. It's actually the first movie that we've done as a feature that came out after the 90s, and it's the 20-year celebration anniversary of Almost Famous. Yeah, I'm so happy we're talking about this movie. I remember when it came out, and it was so heartwarming in a lot of ways, and and 20 years later, it hits in a in a whole different way. Yeah. This movie hasn't aged a day. Like when I watched it, I mean, obviously when you're seeing a movie that has takes place in a specific time period in the past, and when this came out in 2000, it had already taken place like uh, 20 something years ago, but now watching it, it it still kind of feels fresh and um, the performances still feel so vibrant. And uh, yeah, you know, I watched this movie God like three times this week, listening to audio commentaries, there's so much backstory on this movie, so we've, we've got a lot to talk about. There's so much to get into with Almost Famous. It's somewhat overwhelming uh, how much backstory there is with this movie. So we'll be going into that. Uh, the writer, director, producer, Cameron Crowe, will be talking about how uh, this idea came to him, and it really was a passion project. So we'll really dive deep into that. A movie about his crazy childhood, unlike anyone else in this world, probably. Yeah, we should probably say right off the bat, um, this is a somewhat true story, which is pretty fun. And I, I didn't realize that when this came out in 2000 and, you know, reading up on it or maybe it was just hearing later on. I don't actually I don't remember when I realized that some of it was true um, and up until the past couple of years, I didn't realize how true it was. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, I, I was familiar with Cameron Crowe. I certainly was already a fan of his and knew of his work and was a fan of singles. But it, again, didn't know that he had written for Rolling Stone or any of this stuff that he did when he was younger, that he had this like whole sort of like entire uh, journey prior to becoming a film director and that this movie was so heavily based on that. I think, you know, I'm, I'm sure I probably read some article or something like when the, when they were promoting the movie but yeah Mm -hmm. i've been lately 
this last week just reading all the stuff it's just like yeah pretty much it seems like almost everything that took place in the most famous was true outside of <laughs> yeah. maybe a few like dramatical changes to you know for, for for condensing time in the movie we'll get into like we said cameron crowe's early history uh makings of a filmmaker and the truth and fiction behind almost famous what was real uh some behind the scenes stuff and of course we'll always talk about our favorite thing and that is the cast we do love to talk about the cast We'll also, of course, talk about the music and everything to do with the music of this movie. The reception, how it went over when it came out at the box office, probably hit upon, you know, uh, tone, that sort of thing. And man, just how this is a love letter to to music. We'll go pretty deep on this one. Um, of course, after that, we'll get into our picks of the week. I stayed strong with Cameron Crowe and went with uh, one of my favorite films of his, 1992 Singles, which also was a movie that kind of had a heavy music background to it within the film. Oh, it sure does. And I do love Cameron Crowe, but I, I didn't go with a Cameron Crowe film. I went with the connection via Kate Hudson uh, to a movie called Desert Blue. Man, that's one I haven't seen since I think it came out in the 90s. I think I saw that on like the Sundance channel or something way back in the day. Yeah, this was another video story favorite of mine too. Well then of course always we'll round things out with our Murray moments, but before we get into our first clip from this uh, great movie, Lindsay, can you just give us, we're going to talk about so much about this movie, it almost seems weird giving a setup for what the movie's about, but if you can give us a, just a brief little thing. You don't want the extended edition. You want we're, the we're theatrical gonna, well, cut. It's, of it's this so one. weird because it's like we're talking about the <laughs> life in the movie. There's just so much that's connected in this episode. <laughs> it's really true. All right. So, Almost Famous is set in 1973 about an aspiring, talented teenage journalist who discovers writing about music is his calling. He squirms his way backstage into the intimate life of an up-and-coming band along with their most adoring fans and lands a chance to be the youngest writer with a Rolling Stone cover story. This may sound like a far-fetched idea, but as we said, there is some truth to this, and it's based on Cameron Crowe's adolescent life. Um, you know, some names have been changed, but there are some very real people in this story. But Almost Famous tells an inspiring story that's almost completely true. I mean, I'd give it like a 98% true. <laughs> Just swap out some names and it's pretty much all true. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's get into our first clip, then we'll come back. We'll talk about it. I'm with myself. No, who are you with? What band? Oh, uh, I'm here to interview Black Sabbath. I'm a journalist. I'm not, not a, you know. You're not a what? You're not a what? Not a groupie. Groupie? We are not groupies. This is Penny Lane, man. Show some respect. Groupies sleep with rock stars because they want to be near someone famous. We're here because of the music. We are Band-Aids. She used to run a school for Band-Aids. We don't have intercourse with these guys. We support the music. We inspire the music. We're here because of the music. Mark Boland broke her heart, man. It's famous. It's a long story. I'm retired now, visiting friends. You know, she was the one who changed everything. She was the one who said, no more sex. No more exploiting our bodies and our hearts. Right, right. Just blowjobs, and that's it. <laughs> it's all happening! It's all happening! It's all happening! Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
It's all happening. Okay. It's all happening. This is our journalist friend. Journalist friend, meet Plexia Aphrodisia, Astraea Star. And you are. William Miller. You can So much like our very first episode, Ed Wood, where our discussion kind of blurred the lines between the history of the real life Ed Wood and the fictitious film directed by Tim Burton, it's sometimes difficult because you're kind of going back and forth between, well, here's what happened in the movie and here's what really happened. Well, with Almost Famous, it's a little bit easier because, like we said, the majority of this stuff was based directly off of the early life of writer-director Cameron Crowe. It is true. Yeah. And man, little Cameron Crowe must have been something. And from from the way this movie paints it, um, he wasn't exactly precocious or, you know, overconfident or anything. If anything, he was just kind of like a, a little nerd. And his sister says in the movie, you know, he doesn't really have any friends and people make fun of him and he's bullied and ridiculed. But he's a sweet little boy in how this movie portrays him. And I honestly believe that. So he was kind of a little writing savant very early on. And I don't know if this was due to the very true fact of his mom having him skip kindergarten and two grades in high school, if somehow he was advanced due to that or due to his mom being a teacher and schooling him at home. Um, or the fact that both of his parents were more intellectuals and they had uh, they discussed philosophy a, a lot at home. But while they were doing that, Cameron and his sister were into music. His sister very much, his sister very much so influenced him. And that being said, he would do these cute things like sneak music into his house by way of a little tiny radio that he would hide under his pillow at night so his mom wouldn't find out. So everything that you see in Almost Famous of their mom, played by Frances McDormand, kind of freaking out over having a Simon and Garfunkel record, let's say, in the house. All of this really happened. Just Simon and Garfunkel, especially, um, that, that scene that happens in the movie, Cameron and his sister wanted them to actually sat his parents down to to watch Simon and Garfunkel on the Smothers Brothers show, and they did Mrs. Robinson. And the only thing that Cameron's mom could derive from that was that she was offended that they used Jesus the way that they did and all of the innuendos. So he was kind of a strong, independent personality, but so was his mom and his father. So um, it didn't really stop he or his sister from kind of being their own people. Luckily, they kind of lived amongst um, a rather up-and-coming kind of art neighborhood. They lived across from the Globe Theater, which had um, an art complex compound nearby, so there were actors and musicians that were kind of all around the neighborhood. And this only compounded Cameron's interest in writing and of the entertainment like nature. So he did start writing. He was writing for a school newspaper and became interested in music and started submitting articles, not only obviously to his high school newspaper, but to other publications outside of school. He graduated high school when he was 15. Like my brother graduated when he was 17, but 15? Are you kidding me? I was a freshman in high school. So this kid was really making waves for himself, really just paving a path. And in 1972, he called up Rolling Stone with a scoop on Bob Dylan. And kind of that's where everything changed. He soon became the youngest writer for 
Rolling Stone writing profiles on big name musicians like Bob Dylan and David Bowie and the like. Yeah, the early life of Cameron Crowe makes you feel like you didn't do anything, not only when you're 15, but you're like, God, I didn't do anything like that successful in my 20s, you know, <laughs> like, you, you know, he just kind of was a prodigy and uh, really didn't stop there. I mean, uh, after Rolling Stone moved to New York, Cameron Crowe decided to stay in California and got into the film industry by way of when he was 22, deciding to go undercover in high school and write a book about the youth and what was going on. And, uh, you know, he was always very youthful looking, so he was able to fit in and blend really well. And it was kind of, I think, therapeutic for him in a way because he missed out on his senior year of high school because he graduated at such a young age. So he was kind of living that year, his senior year, that he didn't get um, many years earlier. That uh, year of undercover work that he spent ended up turning into the book Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which uh, Cameron Crowe then turned into a movie script. Um, that movie script got a lot, of, a lot of attention. It turned into a movie directed by Amy Heckerling, and it turned out to be a pretty big hit for a small-budgeted movie. Had a lot of cast that uh, went on to do big things like Sean Penn and Phoebe Cates. After the success of that movie, uh, Cameron Crowe wrote another movie called The Wildlife, which was kind of an extension of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Some characters that were a, a couple years older, but still that sort of like wild lifestyle of like drinking, drugs, having sex, and dealing with this next chapter in your life. And the voice of uh, The Wildlife was very strong. It, it got the attention of producer James L. Brooks, who had already had a huge you know, career in Hollywood. And he sort of uh, worked with Cameron Crowe and eventually helped him shape uh, himself into working out as a writer-director for the movie Say Anything, which was, you know, a sleeper hit. I mean, it's now it's well-known and kind of regarded in pop, you know, was regarded in pop culture then, but even more so now. That really sort of catapulted Cameron Crowe's career as a, as a new writer-director. He went on to do singles, which was also like a pretty modest hit. Um, but then he had like a gargantuan, just gigantic success with Jerry Maguire. Um, after the huge success of Jerry Maguire, he had the ability, you know, it was like this point in his career where studios were saying, you know, we're going to give, we'll give you a lot of money to do an original story. And so he had been working on a script for Almost Famous for a while. Like, I think he spent like 10 years working on this idea of like, you know, his early days of of rock music and, and love for music and as a rock writer. And once the ball started rolling, the studio was like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll give you a lot of money to make this movie <laughs> that takes place in the 70s. Because, you know, this is a big production. It's going to, you know, there's all these rock shows. There's this band involves all this music. It's a, it's a period piece. And thus began uh, his, his quest to make this movie about the first part of his life uh, as, a, as a career as a, as a journalist. And it was certainly something that he knew about. He had befriended early on Lester Bangs, who was a, a well-known writer at the time. And, you know, they, they corresponded back and forth and, you know, weren't exactly like the best of buddies, but they definitely were. There was a kinship between them. And he knew a, a lot about at an early age, knew so much about the music industry. So the original idea for this really did start out being a uh, love story, a celebration of the love of music. And it was a finished script, but it was very different from what we know as almost famous. His first attempt, um, completed script, did follow a rock publicist 
And uh, Penny Lane, like we see in, in Almost Famous, was a, a minor part to the story, but not as, as significant as what we what we know in the story today. But he did amend the story greatly um, once the movie Austin Powers came out. And the reason being is that there was an English feel behind this movie. So the, the main band was English, and it was kind of like set in that. And the idea of an Englishman kind of became a joke at that time, uh, Austin Powers' time. So he changed it, and he thought, okay, what if we make this an American band, like a Glenn Fry Eagles, you know, type of thing? And this is what he knew. So it's where the original idea came from. And the more that he wrote, the more that he started incorporating, naturally, I would think, started incorporating more of his family dynamic. And this is where the breakthrough for almost famous um, happened was his family dynamic, his interaction with his mother and how this became a coming of age story about himself on the road. So it was taking things that actually happened, this little guy going out on the road on tour with bands and um, interacting still with his mom at home. And a little bit before this kind of re-envisioning of this story happened, he wrote a story for Live Magazine that went unpublished in 1996, and it was an article that he wrote about he and his mom during this time. And kind of great, because that was yet again another thing that helped him form that article into more of this screenplay. And his mom really did encourage and push him to make this into a movie. She knew that he could do it. I love the family angle of this film. I feel like the movie is stronger for it and it really anchors the reality of the film. I think that if we didn't know anything about William, the main character who is playing Cameron Crowe, if we didn't know anything about his family life or where he came from, it just opened on this kid is on the road and, you know, they did a quick little thing like, oh, his parents gave him permission. I think it would just be a different kind of movie and I don't think that we would have the same emotions for him and also how his mo his mom is popping up throughout Francis McDormand as his mom is popping up throughout the movie checking in on him and being worried about him it I think it actually like makes the movie more endearing and it kind of ramps up the tension as well because it makes you see him as a kid you know he's got all this adult responsibility he's got this pressure he's trying to get this story but at the same time, you can. It's easy to forget that he's a 15 year old boy until his, until his mom gets worried about him and calls him and he talks to her and, and you know and later, you know is longing for her and longing for home. It becomes the most endearing part to the story. I mean, I love everything on the road, and knowing that that Cameron Crowe really was doing this too, like on the road with Led Zeppelin and the Who and the Allen Brothers, knowing that there's so much truth behind it. But for me, almost famous, like the most endearing stuff has to do with his family. Also, too, I think it gives you a good segue into a kid who in another movie, you would kind of see a kid get all, you know, enticed by drugs and women and all this stuff. And you wouldn't believe as much as like, oh, well, this, you know, any kid would just go for it. They'd be like, oh, my God, this is awesome. You know, I'm on the road with this rock band I love and I'm going to do everything in excess. And I love that this movie is not that, you know, and I do love that they keep a lot of the innocence of the character of, of William true and real. And he certainly does partake in some of the partying and, and some of the life on the road. But at the same time, we still see him as like, the, again, like I said, this like sort of innocent child who is taking on just like such a incredible journey. 
it's like one little event, but it's very, very different that this becomes like a coming of age story. Not only that, this like exciting event that the character is doing and it's a road movie and it's a family movie. It's all these things combined, but fit together so perfectly. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that one, that it was real and two, that Cameron Crowe spent, you know, a decade fashioning it to all function as one whole movie. It's also a movie about a style of journalism or just journalism that doesn't really exist anymore. It's a very old school way of getting a story and how, how before the internet, before we, I mean, fax machines were, were becoming a thing, you know, when, when this movie was, you know, set in 1973. And I love that little William, little 15 year old William, his biggest conflict is trying to capture the inner circle of this band that he's now becoming a part of without getting involved in the story and where that might be something that is, you know, unless that is your vein of journalism, unless you're Hunter Thompson for an adult, that should be a fairly easy thing to do or somewhat easy. But for when you're a 15 year old kid to not get involved in the story and it's something like this that is pretty fun. And even though you have these morals that like your mom set, you know, in you and you know what's right and wrong, you're still 15. You know, it's it's hard. It, it's a hard thing to uh, traverse. And I love that about this story. Yeah. And I, and I also love, too, that his 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 approach to this movie and he, he's done in other movies before where. Uh, characters um, are re- reflective on something. They're 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 thinking about what just happened, and a lot of times uh, in the movie, addressing the, the viewing audience, you know, about their feelings or about their retrospect on something that just happened that we just witnessed that character happen, or we hear their inner thoughts. He doesn't do that as much in this movie, and I think for the simple fact that we are already a fly on the wall like the camera glides through the backstage we follow William through this world there's really no reason for him to address the camera or for us to hear his thoughts like out loud as a voiceover because Cameron Crowe knows that world so well he doesn't have to have anybody describe it he's just showing it and this is a very visual movie in the sense that we get to see and experience uh, the excitement that he sees, you know, the the coming into a hotel that's crazy and all these fans running around and all these things that you normally wouldn't get to see. You know, you go to a concert, you watch it and you leave and, you know, your ride home is much different than, you know, William's time after the show ends with Stillwater. <laughs> yeah, that's very true. Stillwater, the name of the band. And I have to say, pretty good fake name for a band, too. It is, it is a good fake name, and I do... I, we'll get into the music, but I do like how Cameron Crowe decided to make this band as a an American band that's, like, on the cusp of, you know, they're, they're, they're definitely influenced by their band, so they have a sound that's, like, similar to a lot of bands going on that are popular, but they also have that sound that, like, people are excited about it's like a newer sound it's not so much focused on like these sort of like r&b bluesy stuff of the 60s and stuff that you know the beatles were influenced by and and the rolling stones it was like more and also had like a southern tinge to it like grittier dirtier guitar tones and I, i love the introduction to the band stillwater where he's he's following them into trying to get an interview and then he he knows all their names and you know he says you know your 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 guitar playing is incendiary you know and immediately <laughs> like everybody just turns around they're like what the hell you know and 
And, uh, you know, he starts complimenting them in ways that it's playing to their ego, but at the same time they see, no, this kid's listened to our album. He's not like a journalist who doesn't even like our band, who's like forced to go do an interview with us, and he's really here to cover Black Sabbath, but he could give two craps, and he just wants to get two words from us so that they can, you know, he can get paid to print, print it in a magazine. And they're seeing someone who's like a journalist, but at the same time who really has spent the time and like listened to their album and is like thoughtful about it. And it's a really beautiful scene, and I think that's our, that's like the gateway into this world of Stillwater and, and William. And then, you know, of course, we enter in the character of Penny Lane, played by Kate Hudson, who uh, becomes like you know a big part of basically the 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 union between William's character and and the main character Russell Hammond and Stillwater. And Penny Lane was a actual, you know, person um, from, let's see, I think it was like 71, early 70s, 71 to 74. And she was one of the more well-known and there were definitely a hardcore like group of, of women who were, for all intents and purposes, like pretty much promoters of of these bands and not only fans, but and not like ravenous fans, not just like ready to, you know, not not doing something over the top, but just really knew how to um, get in there and enjoyed the music and felt it like to their deepest core. And it wasn't something that was they just wanted to be around someone that's famous or sleep with someone that's famous. It wasn't about that. It really was something that was. Um, on another level. And for a lot of people, Penny Lane was a legend. She really was. And uh, she's still around today, definitely doesn't kiss and tell and tell stories, but really did know Cameron Crowe. And they hadn't seen each other in, in a lot of years. But I know that she does endorse this film as a pretty good recounting of of some some factual things that happened. Yeah. And I, and I certainly love the fact that Cameron Crowe is really smart and he has William fall in love with Penny Lane and the way she's set up and the way her 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 vibe and, and her attitude toward life and toward music. I mean, how could you not fall in love with someone like that, especially at the age of 15 and also being a lover of music? And I love that that doesn't really get in the way so much in the movie. I mean, that relationship is ever present when you're watching William and, and Penny Lane interact and, and it certainly comes up later on in the movie but this isn't a movie about a guy trying to get the girl you know it's it's more about him trying to get the story him trying to get the interview with the band and and get home in one piece but at the same time there's this great uh, relationship that he has where he longs for her but she, he also cares about her and she more longs for Russell Hammond the the lead of Stillwater lead guitar player Stillwater but he's married and it gets complicated. I love those relationship dynamics in this movie, but at the same time, they're not so trite and what you expect is going to happen. And I love that they just seem really fresh and really genuine. And I think that has always been uh, Cameron Crowe's strong suit when he's when he's writing scripts and writing characters. You know, he kind of gets to the heart of of what they're feeling. And a lot of times in this movie, I feel like, again, it's less about what the characters are saying and more about what they're expressing in this movie than his previous works. A lot of that is, is used with the music, you know, his, his use of music in the, in the movie. But also, I, I know in interviews, he said a method that he uses that he found early on to work really great is 
in scenes especially where there it's a character reacting to something or there's not a lot of dialogue if he's trying to emote a particular feeling from an actor he'll put on a piece of music and he'll play it on the set and for the most part all the actors that he's worked with have been comfortable with that and even Kate Hudson said uh you know he played a piece of uh, Bruce Springsteen's The Promise whenever she's sort of like fake meeting Russell Hammond for the first time when William introduces her and he says hi and she has like a glow on her face and there's like a tiny tear that she wipes away and she was feeling emotional about the song not so much about the scene but he ended up using it and he you know he said this method of like playing music on set to to sort of create a vibe cuz i can imagine it being tr- you know, really hard. There's everybody there and, you know, it gives the actor something to focus on, something them, something them to play off emotionally, you know, this piece of music that already exists, that already has uh, that in there, that emotion. And uh, he said, for the most part, that's worked out well. I think the only time that didn't fit was uh, with Philip Seymour Hoffman, who kind of did not like that method. And, you know, they had like a tiny little discourse about it but outside of that that's been his method it's really interesting to me I think that's a really cool way to uh, get in and and work with actors by using music especially for a movie like this and and how much music plays in all his films I can understand where Philip Seymour Hoffman might come from like you know thinking hey you know I'm already I'm already in the zone I don't need something else affecting me like that however when it's a movie like this, like you said, that's about music and it's like this magical anything is possible type of feeling like this whole film is a mood, is a feeling. And there are, are emotions that come through just in eye contact. Like there's one scene where it's just eye contact and you're reading multiple people and you know the emotions that are happening and there's no dialogue. You know, it's just through the music and just eyes, you know, like there's there's a certain poetry to how Cameron Crowe does a film and especially one like this that is so personal. I, I can't help but think that having music playing in the background to kind of, you know, emotionally manipulate someone is really going to help out. Yeah. And, and especially too, like where, a, you know, a traditional Hollywood film, a lot of that can be fixed with a score because, you know, after the movie's done, you know, a composer can score emotion within the scene you know they have it they're watching it they're they're scoring it to the movie and so everything is played out already but this movie doesn't have a traditional score there's just endless amounts of just like bits and pieces of songs a lot that we're you know that you would already be familiar with as a listener of of 70 you know early 70s music so you know I think it is good that he you know gave the actors a little something extra because there are so many different little interludes and music interludes and really in a lot of his movies that he does but This one is just like packed, just wall to wall. And again, we'll talk about music later, but it is, it it, it just, every time I watch this, I'm like, man, there's just so much music in this. And like listening to the soundtrack, it's like, there's so many good songs. That's going to be a topic we'll get into. The songs of Stillwater, uh, the fake band in this movie, and all of the feelings behind it and the cast. Well, let's, uh, let's go to a clip and then we'll come back and we'll talk about all that. How about that, Lindsay? I think that sounds great. All right. We'll be right back. Oh, man. You made friends with them. See, friendship is the booze they feed you. As they want you to get drunk and feeling like you belong. Well, it was fun. Because they make you feel cool. And hey, I met you. You are not cool. I know. 
Even when I thought I was, I knew I wasn't. Because we are uncool. No, while women will always be a problem for guys like us, most of the great art in the world is about that very problem. Good-looking people, they got no spine. Their art never lasts. And they get the girls. But we're smarter. Yeah, I can really see that now. Yeah, because great art is about you know, the guilt and longing and, you know, love disguises sex and sex disguises love. Hey, let's face it. <laughs> yeah, you got a big head start. I'm glad you were home. I'm always home. I'm uncool. Me too. You're doing great. You know? The only true currency in this bankrupt world is what you share with someone else when you're uncool. Is that my advice to you? And I know you think these guys are your friends. If you want to be a true friend to them, be honest and unmerciful. So before we get into the cast of this movie... A big thing to talk about is the music, because like we said, this movie's wall to wall with music. And though most of the people in the band Stillwater, I think it was like 50 percent uh, actors and 50 percent real musicians, they needed to convincingly have a band that sounded like they were still not totally seasoned, like professionals like on the road i mean a good sounding band don't get me wrong like not unprofessional but not a band that had been you know a huge band that had like five albums under their belt and but the music still had to be good and it still had to be a music that you would like and that would like cater to that time period and so cameron crow i think was like very smart and he was lucky enough that his wife happened to be not only a phenomenal guitar player but uh was also in a band heart during that time period and knew all about that sound and, and what that she knew that band exactly what they would sound like the kind of band that would be opening for black Sabbath. And I mean, she can't help but be involved in in some way in your, in your process, you know, in making this movie. She, I think they, they had uh, known each other since 81 and got married like in 86 or something after that, but they've been together forever. Like she knew him, she knew his stories and she was in friggin' heart. Like, of course you're going to have that be one of your uh, people to ensure the authenticity to uh, to this movie. It's, yeah, Nancy Wilson, awesome. And also uh, the other person to head, head this authenticity route was Peter Frampton. They both uh, wrote songs and filled, well, uh, they both wrote songs for the band. I think Stillwater had six songs, was it? I think it was like, yeah, I think it was like six songs. And Cameron Crowe and Nancy Wilson wrote some songs together, um, and Peter Frampton filled out the rest. As far as the people that made up the band, I know Nancy Wilson played rhythm guitar, which you and I were talking off the mic that it's there's not a rhythm guitarist guitar in still water <laughs> but it de- definitely does round out the sound and i don't it think it's, i don't yeah. think you it's it's something noticeable because we're so focused on jason lee singing and and billy kudrup playing the guitar yeah and who else fills out the rest of the band was uh, uh mike mccready from pearl jam he's the the russell hammond guitarist and there was also john bayless who played bass and ben smith was the drummer for this now the real musicians in Stillwater were uh Mark Koslick uh, who uh, played bass he's in Sun Kill Moon and John Fedovic 
who was the drummer. And it's funny, they don't really talk about him very much in this. I figured he wasn't a drummer, but then as I looked at it more closely, uh, he doesn't look like someone that just picked up drums and looked like he knew exactly what he was doing. And for something that's a little bit more harder than, let's say, you know, that thing you do, which... Tom Everett Scott did pick that up, you know, fairly quickly. For something like a hard rock band like this, he certainly looked like he knew exactly what he was doing. Well, and he like leads the song Fever Dog off that they do. Yeah. The the drum beat that, 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 you know, that Fever Dog song I listened to so many times in the last week and it was like (laughs) bothering me that I could not think of what song it reminded me of because I was like, this sounds like a down-tempo version of a song another song that I know and it like bothered me and bothered me and I'm driving the other day and it finally hit me and I listened to him back to back the song uh bullet and blue sky by U2 sounds like a sped up version oh. of fever dog that, <laughs> really that, that constant really? drum beat and then when the bass and the the electric drop in but anyway I, I forgot to say also uh Ann Wilson uh did one song too she wrote one song i think it was uh called chance upon you was one of stillwater songs yeah nancy wilson also did one of the it was like this little acoustic interlude whenever william and penny lane are talking they're like giving each other glances she's doing this like really like beautiful acoustic interlude piece underneath I was wondering what song it is that's playing over just the instrumental when William's running after Penny Lane at the as she's taking off in the airplane. I was trying to figure out who that was. I figured it was probably like Nancy Wilson, but I I don't know. Yeah. It's a really it's a really beautiful little just little, little musical part. If you're familiar with Peter Frampton, most of his big stuff that people are familiar with his big songs were live versions of, of what he did, not so much studio recordings. So I think he was like this great choice of a musician to train the band on how to like perform live and how to sound live. And they did like a, would you call it like a, a music rock camp type situation where uh, very much kind of in the same way that um, the band got together in that thing you do, you know, they, they kind of, sat him down and, and Peter Frampton taught, gave uh, Billy Kudrup like a crash course in playing lead guitar. It's kind of crazy to step into being a guitarist and not knowing anything at all how to do that, but really did work it out. Jason Lee had some experience, um, but he really wasn't required to, to do too much of that. Yeah, since he was lip syncing, but don't get me wrong, that's that's not super easy but having to actually play lead guitar where they're doing close-ups of your fingers and stuff that uh that would be a lot more pressure yeah that's a big deal and nancy wilson helped kind of like with the slang and like how people spoke then um and along with peter frampton you know setting the scene like what what did the stage setup look like yeah. what would you walk like would you you know a musician wouldn't exactly be walking tall there'd be like a certain slouch type of thing you know during that time all of these things that both of these musicians knew like they lived and breathed that era and uh, I couldn't think of two better people to do it yeah and it certainly helps out I think the the scenes where they're playing live are very exciting and you kind of get that excitement of what it must have been like to be in like a club and seeing, I mean, mm-hmm. obviously if you've ever been to a show where you see them when your favorite bands play, but that kind of excitement before a band comes out and everybody's like into it, you know, and screaming. But this movie I thought 
does a great job of, and uh, uh, both of us have been playing in bands, like seeing what the crowd looks like from the stage. I thought that the uh, movie did an incredible job of, of, of showing that like kind of where you're, you're seeing people and you're, you know, you're, you're so focused on, you know, you're trying to play, but you're also vibing off of the energy of a crowd and trying to see people at the same time and trying to focus on a song. And it's like this sort of strange mix of things where all these things are going on at once. And you're also, it's like weird that you're in front of people and that you're performing. And like, I think this movie does a great job of kind of capturing all that like madness of sort of like 40 minutes that you're sharing with a, a group of people. And it's, it's kind of a wild, wild rush. If you've, if you've ever not played live in front of people, it's, it's a, it's a wild rush and it's a great feeling. And I, at least from my personal experience, I thought this movie did a great job of capturing uh, the, the feel and attitude of like performing on stage. Very much so. I, I couldn't agree more. And you as a front person, I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting in the back. You have always kind of taken it, you know, much more, not that I don't take it seriously, but just you, you are much more focused. You like, you're very, you know, Jason Lee about this Stillwater, you know, you're, you're very, very focused on, you know, putting on a really good show. Not that I'm not, it's just, I, I can kind of slack off and sit down. Jason Lee's exaggerated version is I find that guy who's not getting off and I get him off, which is like a ridiculous (laughs) line, but it makes for a great scene. I mean, the things that he says are not, inaccurate every instrument every part of a band functions to make it one whole but yes yeah, as, as an audience member a lot of times you're going to gravitate toward visually watching someone who's moving around the most or interacting with the crowd the most and so of course jason lee that's his job as a lead singer he's trying to rile the crowd up and and be as sexy as he can and be as energetic <laughs> as he can Jason Lee, with that sexy hair piece he's got yeah. on. There certainly was a lot of authenticity thrown into this. You know, whether it is Nancy Wilson making sure that all of these recordings are analog, so they they sound of the era, or it's the entire look of the band, the fashion, the costuming, the hair. Um, everything about this is just uh, so authentic, and the actors really had to put a lot of effort into creating that image and being willing to let go of how you would normally be because the the 70s one obviously are a different era and two you're being a specific type of thing and like a rock band of the time without seeming like a parody and that i think is such a risk when it comes to any movie about a band to come off cheesy to come off silly especially when it is a very pointed moment in time i i think that's the great thing about this movie is the band is already semi-established, uh, already on the road, already have songs. You're not dealing with this band who's like trying to create in, in a rehearsal studio or like they're working on an album or anything like that. That has been done to death in movies, and so you're basically just getting ready to. You're spending time with the band that you know, just like the title suggests, is almost famous. They're like working their way there, but when you're not all the way there yet you do have these obstacles and you do have that sort of sense of ego and fame that's like staring you straight in the eye. And like uh, Jimmy Fallon, who plays the new manager who comes in to, you know, tell, tell the guys, you know, you can keep doing these shows where you're losing out on money and 
you don't know about insurance and you're traveling by bus that breaks down, I can take you to the next level where these bands are flying to cities and they're playing bigger stadiums and they're getting bigger deals. And so it's interesting because, yeah, you see a band who's there's still excitement. They still haven't quite made it. So there's like that level there of like you're rooting for them at the same time. And they're also um, haven't been doing it so long that they're jaded. The authenticity i think of uh, all of these characters is is especially important we focus on probably more penny lane and uh william the most and then stillwater the band but it's so such an ensemble cast that it really does kind of all mix in together and there's really no variation in tone like like we were saying before like the movie itself is like a a mood or a feel and it does feel like the cast is really writing the same exact like 70s wave without appearing to be a parody yeah and and i think the william character played by patrick fugit makes the movie not be parody because he is searching for the essence of their music i mean he is a good writer but he's also very passionate and he truly loves their music and they're coming from a standpoint of like you know they've they've already known that journalists can make you look like a buffoon you know so they're trying to be very careful they're very they're they're protecting themselves from him recording them there's like the suggestion that we don't want you to expose us doing drugs and like sleeping with with other women the subtle manipulation of a journalist but what's funny is is that they don't realize that he doesn't really care about that you know that's not that's not even the story that he's looking for but i do like that there's this sort of like little push and pull between uh billy cutter russell hammond's character and william because he's trying you know he's he's talked to the other guys but he really needs to get that interview he needs to get the the heart of the band as russell even though he's not the lead singer he he's the primary talent that people seem to be focused on and he knows that that that's the most mysterious character he's the most reserved so he really wants his interview and he's desperately trying throughout the movie and that's what we as the audience are are hoping for you know we're like pulling for him and as the movie goes on we're like what's wrong with this russell guy like why is he being so stubborn and pig-headed about not giving this interview but then of course we find out later that once the article comes out that william writes they don't want it printed because they're like, oh my God, this it's he he totally captured a band who is on the brink of stardom and we're like arguing with each other and our egos are all over the place. Well, they didn't take him seriously. Exactly. Um, but to round out the band in Stillwater, uh, John Fedovic and Mark Koslick, who are both uh previously in bands and and, in the music industry it's funny because they're they're you know they're musicians and they're there for authenticity but at the same time generally in interviews and stuff you don't really hear from the drummer or the bass player they're easygoing they're soldiering on for the band you know they're they're the backbone that's played out in almost famous really well like you you never really hear from those guys you see them they're there there's little snippets of them they say a word here or there but for the most part, the story is focused on the two lead guys in the band, played by Jason Lee and, and Billy Kudrup. I've always taken that to be kind of just the, the joke that the bassist and the drummer are silent. I don't know if that's intentional, but it's it's always the joke that I've pulled from it. Yeah, I feel like that's that's in there. You know, I kind of feel like that was in that thing you do as well. Yeah, yeah. I know that we, we've already hit on uh, Patrick Fugit a little bit, uh, who plays the lead, William, but he he's really, I, I love him in, in films. He's always sweet and endearing, 
And he does pull it off so much in this. And I think he was a gamble for this role, too. Now, with Cameron Crowe kind of casting himself, that must have been super hard. I, I would imagine you'd be very self-conscious and like kind of embarrassing a little bit. I know that he was one of the last or one of the like latter ones to be cast. And yeah, he couldn't have been better. And this completely blew up his career too. Yeah. And I think gamble is like, you couldn't pick a more perfect word to describe using going with him as someone who had never been in a movie. I mean, he came from acting in plays in elementary school and high school and was really 15 and then becoming the main character in a huge multi-million dollar picture from with an established writer director who you're playing his life and I think he even said at one point when he was acting with Philip Seymour Hoffman Philip Seymour Hoffman kind of said like you can't you can't mess this up man like you're you're this never happens. Like all the, you know, you didn't have to pay your dues and like (laughs) be the extra and then have these little speaking parts for years and years. Like you were plucked out of obscurity and now you're like the centerpiece for this huge movie with all these like experienced actors. I I mean, I can't imagine the pressure. I can't imagine the the pressure on, on you to not only be acting across from these people that you probably grew up watching, you know, like Philip Seymour Hoffman, but at the same time and a director like Cameron Crowe, but then uh, you're trying to do his story, his personal story justice. I mean, it's kind of crazy. And man, I really think he nailed it. I really, and I think it's great that they, they got somebody who was unknown that you, you hadn't seen their face before. And, you know, you probably didn't know what Cameron Crowe looked like, you know, he directors most of the time, unless they're like Steven Spielberg or Quentin Tarantino, or they like to get their picture in their paper, you don't really see their face. And so I thought it was just a perfect, um, mix of like obscurity and and using an unknown to really care for this character like he like he's a real person and philip seymour hoffman he has i mean he's probably one of the most well known next to francis mcdormand uh, at, at this time in the movie and philip seymour hoffman coming in for this part that is somewhat of a minor supporting role, I think is brilliant because for a movie like this, in order for it to work, um, it's great to have familiar faces in it, like, like Philip Seymour Hoffman or Francis McDormand to be the face of it. It's almost like you need, you need a cast of people you kind of know you've seen in, you know, one-off movies here or there, but it's not like a big thing. So having him in a strong supportive role of Lester Bangs, who was very influential to, you know, a little Cameron Crowe, kind of seems brilliant. And Frances McDormand playing William's mom. I mean, I can gush about Frances McDormand till the cows come home. I love the woman. And can you imagine playing your writer, director, producer's mother in a movie? Like, I'm sure that she's such a pro. She probably recognized the weight of that. But Cameron Crowe's mom, Alice, was on the set quite often. I, I do remember in one of her interviews her saying the scene where she's talking to William on the phone, he can't hear because there's so much going on. He's on a payphone, And she says, I love you. And he, he doesn't hear her because he's trying to get off the phone because everyone's yelling at him in the background. And she said it was like this moment of frustration in her character. So she took the phone and like whips it out of her hand instead of hanging it up. And she said Cameron Cameron Crowe was like, man, 
it was like way more dramatic than I was like kind of expecting you to go. And he was like, can you really like tone that down? And she thought for the character it worked. But again, it's a, it's a, a director who is like letting an actor be free and, and go with something. And, and she said that was the take that ended up going in the movie. And later on, you know, he was like, oh, yeah, that he wasn't seeing the connection. She was already making this connection to that character of like the frustration she must feel of not being able to have control of her child, not being able to control this world that he's getting sucked into. And, and just in that one quick moment, be able to project that to an audience, that frustration. I love just that little part too, because you see she's already getting worked up before that. And it's not something that's obvious. She's not breaking down. The character of Elaine is very together, very composed, and she's very frustrated at what's going on with her son and that she's already lost control of her daughter and feels now that she has both her daughter, Anita, played by Zoe Deschanel, has left the house kind of under an argument that that they've had, and now her son has been kidnapped by rock stars, like she tells her English students. She's left by herself. She's left alone. She isn't in control of things. And so she is very frustrated as a woman that has just wants the best for her children, who is extremely intelligent. You can see the frustration brewing in her. And every time that we have a scene with her on the phone, whether it's with her son or whether it's with the Russell Hammond character, every time something happens or when it's with Feruza Balk, these are just incredible scenes and it is two people on a phone how can a scene like that be so incredible but every single time it happens in this movie it's wonderful yeah i i love her dedication and drive to trying to get william home and it really is i i think that's what makes the end of the movie so emotional zoe dashanel who plays cameron crowe's sister she's in the movie in the beginning the shows that she was an influence on his life and then she she has to break away from this life she's you know, doesn't want to conform to this household where her mom is so controlling. And then at the end of the movie, when she brings William back home, the embrace she has with Frances McDormand is is so emotional, you know, and, and so awkward at the same time. And I, I feel like Cameron Crowe, he, he really, as, as far as a, a movie that the youth are written so well, he also is like very respectful of like the the adult relationships in the movie and, and the family relationships in the movie. To me, they bookend this movie so well. And I don't know, I, I can't see, it'd be hard to see like someone else cast as, as, as his mom. Yeah, there were some other contenders. Yeah, Meryl Streep was up for that. And Brad Pitt, if you can believe it, was up for the Billy Kudrup role, as well as Sarah Polly, both of which were in it for about four months. Yeah. And really in it, you know, kind of dedicated. And um, for one reason or another, Brad Pitt dropped out, but you you could tell, at least from the way Cameron Crowe talks about it, well, one, it was completely devastating to him that he dropped out because he, he was really in it and um, came back in like a few weeks or a couple months later. And Brad Pitt came back in and said, I just want to let you guys know I'm still thinking about you. And, and then like paced out, <laughs> even though he didn't want to be in the movie. Like, what is that about? Well, and Brad Pitt was even a big deal in 2000. I mean, he's a bigger actor now, but in 2000, having Brad Pitt in your movie was a, you know, that was going to get a bunch of people involved, and it did get a bunch of people involved. And then, yeah, Yeah. to to have it go from Brad Pitt to such, uh, and Billy Cudrup's awesome, but he certainly was nowhere near as known as Brad Pitt at that 
point in his career. And the same thing could be really said for Sarah Polly. I I mean, I I saw Sarah Polly in quite a few movies in the 90s, but she was more of an independent film actress and that was in the end why she ended up dropping out or at least yeah. that's the the story behind it was that she was kind of afraid that being in a bigger budget movie like this uh, and it's not like she hasn't been in big budget movies, but yeah. whatever. Who knows the um, decisions you make at that who knows? time? You know? Yeah, who knows? But um, she, yeah, she she was in it and dropped out basically for that reason. She was scared of the Hollywood machine, as as Cameron Crowe said. And so after Sarah Polly dropped out, um, Kate Hudson had actually already been cast for the Zoe Deschanel role of Anita she had originally said you know like when she read the script thought wow you know this Penny Lane character Sarah Polly is like super lucky to have this role and so then she hears she drops out and is like hey what about I auditioned for that and it's not what Cameron Crowe was thinking and it wasn't until the the casting director Gail Levin really lobbied for Kate Hudson to audition for that and to me, to be so adamant against it seems crazy. I, and again, I'm not seeing her in the audition process or before that. You know, if you're really in it and you think she is playing my sister in a movie, that's that's what you have your heart set on. But thinking about her as Penny Lane is kind of a no-brainer. I don't know if I knew Kate Hudson by name, but I had seen her in movies but I remember this movie coming out and she was the the star of the movie. Like, you know, it's it's about Billy Cudrup and, and William trying to get the interview and Patrick Fugit is like the main guy. And you have all these people, but the person that I remember walking away and like, who is this? You're just seeing a star making performance uh, on the screen. And yeah, I, I just... I, it's it's hard again for even that role of Penny Lane to picture anybody but Kate Hudson at that moment in time, mm-hmm. um, at, at like such a young age too, at like nineteen, you know, like I know giving that kind of performance in a layered performance as well. And Penny Lane was the main band aid, as they were called, the super fan, the promoters of these bands. Uh, but she wasn't the only one. Um, there were quite a few kind of in this movie, but I'd say like the three main ones. Um, that you might recognize today would be Feruza Balk, Anna Paquin, and Bijou Phillips, who all really turn in great, like, perfect performances for, for what they're doing. And Feruza Balk, I'd say, stands out um, amongst all of them. She has a weird quirkiness about her where she can throw in realness with some type of, like, sly wit and, and humor when it's appropriate. And like I said, the the scene with uh, she and Frances McDormand on the phone kills me every time. Yeah, I think she she gets one of the uh, biggest laughs in the movie where she's running while the bus <laughs> is going to tell William. She's like, your mom called and she's trying to explain to him and then like isn't looking and you just see her body like slam into like this concrete pole. It's like the, one of the only moments of physical humor in the movie. Yeah, yeah. but it works. It's so perfectly placed. I think the time and dedication that they took to finding the the right people and the right vibe and and having all these people get along like a family really made the movie authentic i i can't uh praise the casting enough you can tell that there was so much love put into this one and with that said um with the amount of love and labor and just so much attention to detail put in this movie and a fairly 
decent sized budget for DreamWorks too. When this movie opened, I don't see how it really could have, you know, done badly uh, when it opened, but it, it opened well to critics and got uh, a lot of praise and even uh, won one Oscar, was nominated for uh, Best Editing and both uh, Frances McDormand and Kate Hudson were nominated for Best Supporting Actress and it won best original screenplay but uh when it was released it happened to be released the same weekend that if you remember when the exorcist was re-released with new footage i certainly do and i know that i went to go see the exorcist in the theater and i didn't go see almost famous in the theater i went to see both of them but i certainly remember the hype around the exorcist and i think cameron crowe joked that uh my movie about the 70s got beat at the box office by a movie that came out in the 70s. It was the same year. It was 73. <laughs> yeah, which is just crazy. And it, it's it's crazy to me that this movie just wasn't a slam dunk at the box office. And it, it and I feel like this movie is uh, so well regarded now, and not in even like a small cult way. I feel like this movie has become, in the same way that Shawshank Redemption is considered one of the great American classics that nobody saw in 1994. This movie, I, I feel like, is in that lineage of of films that were they were great when they came out. And I mean, I remember walking out of this movie going like, "God, what a great movie!" You know, and thinking that the performances were amazing. But love how this movie has has ga- gained an audience, and how that there's people now saying, you know, I've had my kid watch Almost Famous and my kid loves it. And it's it's still a movie that translates to youth and translates to that time in your life of of being free and not having quite the re- adult responsibilities, but that sort of like change and, and being interested in something like music, having that become a particular type of music, having that represent how you feel about life and, and that being your own personal thing. Like this is the kind of music that I listen to that's different from, you know, separating yourself from certain people and then bonding with other people over that same interest. I do really love that, that you can, you can replace music with whatever you want to, you know, in this movie, you have an intense love for something and you feel it at your core. I think we can all relate to that. Everything about this movie, I think, is very relatable. Any coming-of-age story generally tends to be like that. But to be able to relate to people um, when they're you know, going through adolescence in one way, and then you watch this much later in life at any other stage, and it still is just as relatable, just in a different way. I don't think Cameron Crowe goes for any you know, cheap emotional hits. Um, I think he's just has an emotionally charged movie and you can't help but be affected. I, I like that you said that because this is a feel good movie. And when you hear the word feel good, I mean, you, you think like, OK, th- there's going to be a bunch of sappy moments. And I don't I don't think that Cameron Crowe is a person who fears going into a, s- a sappy area. And not that that's a bad place to be, but I, I feel like this movie just toes that fine line because this wasn't sappy to him. This is real. This is like real nostalgia for him. This was real life. This was real, real family uh, interaction and, and conflict where it could be conceived as like sappy, I think is just, it's, it's just real f- genuine feelings, you know, that are exposed and they make you emotional. They make you cry. They make you laugh. And this, this movie really is, it's, it's an emotional roller coaster, and it's one that I still haven't grown tired of. I mean, some some of the movies that we do, God, I love them so much. But after 
two weeks of like talking, you know, thinking about them and watching them, I can feel like I'm getting a little burnt out. And this movie really didn't do that. You know, I, I just felt like every time I watched it, it still hit me emotionally the same way. And it still made me feel good in the same way. Maybe it's that road trip aspect. Like every time I watch it, I feel like I see a little nuanced thing that's yeah. that's new or something in the background that I didn't see before. Or, I mean, geez, just the extended version, the bootleg yeah. cut um, is amazing. There's what, like 35 more minutes added to it. And it's not, you know, like we've, we've talked about this before, like sometimes extended cuts can be, you know, you get why things are cut out and you know, whatnot. But this one, I feel like if you love this movie, you get nothing but just like more of what you love contained within it. I think out of all of the times, I'm not even going to say how many times I've watched this and just in the past two weeks and in my life, but it's quite a few. Um, I've watched the extended cut like every time and it's, it clocks in at about two hours and 40 minutes and I don't get, don't get tired of it, but it does feel like I went on a journey But I think you see that not only in the story, but you also see it in the actors. And the actors did go through a lot of fatigue towards, you know, towards the the end of this film. It was filmed. I think this is amazing. It was filmed in order, in sequence. And just knowing that and, and seeing the journey of this and you see how especially Patrick Fugit is ragged. At the end, you know, and, and and even Kate Hudson, like towards the end, too, um, you really see it. And if there's anything else that makes us relate to it, you know, if it's the story about the, the family or, you know, helping the mom to be a little bit more enlightened, even though she's already very enlightened. If it's just going on a journey, like you feel it, there's something to relate to in this movie. Yeah, there's um, the moment when Pat when. Patrick Fugit gets home from the whole tour and he looks at his bed and he like kind of almost like embraces it. He caresses it. This sort of like, this is what I need right now. Um, Cause I've just been on such a like exhaustive journey. I, th- I think is like one of the more telling signs in, in the movie of like authenticity of if you've ever like left home for a while or like, you know, been gone for two or three weeks, like your, your room and your bed will just seem different to you seem much more important and watching this movie in the middle of pandemic I don't know it's like maybe I'm just going crazy you know slowly <laughs> each with each month but there maybe. was some there was something about watching a movie where something was exciting was happening in someone's life that was like really positive and then they got to go on this like long journey and like leave their house for like a long extended period of time and I, I don't know it's like what I needed was to watch like an adventure adventure type movie that was also based in reality because you know I just we've been stuck inside and we don't get to go on trips and we don't get to communicate with people and have these like exciting interactions right now and and this movie is just nonstop full of them so and we don't get I, to play shows. We're not yeah, playing shows. Yeah, so so I highly recommend Almost Famous as a as a necessity as a as a pandemic watch. Oh, I hadn't even thought of that. It really is a good pandemic watch. I remember in early of this pandemic when I was like ironically watching pandemic type movies and I was like, Oh ha, ha, ha. and now yeah, I'm just like, Jesus, I just need something to make me feel good when I wake up. <laughs> This one, this one's gonna uh, ring some emotions out of you. And I guarantee if you're like me, 
uh, you turn it off and put on like regular TV, you're going to immediately want to go back to the world of Stillwater. Like, just bring it back to me. Bring, show me the whole, show me the whole Stillwater show on the bootleg DVD, please. Because yeah. I, that's the world I want to live in right now. Can I be Penny Lane, please? Yep. We could go on about Almost Famous forever, but let's stop there and get into our picks of the week. We'll come back for some final thoughts, though. So, Lindsay, I uh, again, I went with Cameron Crowe's singles for my pick of the week, but you chose a very, very indie early film performance by Kate Hudson, and that's Desert Blue. What can you tell me about that movie? I love Desert Blue for its simplicity, for the small ghost town vibe it so skillfully creates for the development of characters and charming nature of the townsfolk. Now, though this is a beautifully picturesque desert setting for a film, it's the characters who make this movie so captivating. The story centers around a little desert town of Baxter, population 87. We're introduced to a group of friends, all individual personalities laid back and comfortable in their small town vibe. Baxter's got one claim to fame. It has the world's largest ice cream cone roadside attraction connected to a tiny ice cream stand. Enter dad and daughter road trippers. Dad's a professor who looks into roadside attractions, and the daughter is a budding young TV starlet on the way to her next audition in L.A. The story grows into something unexpected when a tractor trailer carrying a mystery substance for a local soda plant overturns and the driver dies, presumably because of exposure to the cargo he's carrying. In comes the FBI and the town of Baxter gets quarantined. Alongside this small town conspiracy, there's an additional mystery of what caused a fire at the local motel which killed the creator of the roadside ice cream cone and the uncompleted desert water park, a vision of which was never able to come to fruition due to the soda plant moving into town. The unfinished, now dusty skeleton of a water park stands as a relic to the creator who hoped to make this a reality one day. And it's this water park that is truly the heart of the film. The tone of Desert Blue is what draws me right in. It's not a comedy nor a drama. There's a hint of mystery, like I said, but that's more the backdrop. If you're someone that enjoys a story, nothing flashy but great interplay between characters and becoming engrossed in human interaction, Desert Blue plays so hard on that. It's an easygoing story. It's not action-packed, but more curious. It's that curiosity that keeps you hooked. It's watching an L.A. C-list celebrity's intrigue grow for a small-town guy who doesn't treat her any differently than his other friends. It's her looking outside herself. It's seeing yourself in these characters. These youngsters who work at the local convenience store play the one arcade at the local diner who look forward to competing in the regional motocross competition or just being a person who finds their fun in blowing something up. It's a small town. You have to pave your own way and find what makes you happy. Desert Blue was written and directed by Morgan J. Freeman, who busted out on the scene with Hurricane Streets in 1997. Before that, Freeman had become friends with another writer-director, Todd Salons, whom we talked about at great length in episode 55 for Welcome to the Dollhouse. It was here where Freeman met actor Brendan Sexton III, which led to the actor being in Hurricane Streets and him in the starring role in Desert Blue. That said, this entire movie is a regular who's who of Hollywood today. Sexton plays Blue, the son of the Baxter creative visionary behind the ice cream cone in defunct water park. And Kate Hudson plays the TV star named Sky, who becomes enchanted by this boy named Blue. Get it? Blue? Sky? See there? 
Um, Sexton's genuine innocence and Hudson's captivating nature really put a headlock on your heart, or at least mine. And Christina Ricci, who at this point in her career was an indie movie darling, is the angsty town pyro who ends the movie in such a spectacular fashion. Casey Affleck plays the perfect boyfriend counterpart to Ricci, while Ethan Supley and Isidra Vega round out the main friend group and add such a charming nature to the entire film. I love them as a couple. It's really cute. My voice soul twin, Sarah Gilbert, you might know from Roseanne fame, um, is the town conspiracy theorist trying to get to the bottom of the town quarantine. Her counterpart is played by Peter Sarsgaard, the owner of the Burned Down Motel. And then we've got John Hurd, Lucinda Jenny, Daniel Van Bargen, and Anjouan Ellis, and Total Recall's Michael Ironside, who hold down the fort as the more adult side of the narrative. And just as a little fun fact, depending on your musical taste, since this is a little musical episode here, um, you might also notice a familiar radio DJ voice in one very brief scene. And I've always noticed it, and I finally Googled it this time. That is indeed Fred Schneider of the B-52s. And speaking of music, uh, Rilo Kiley, Ben Lee, Cat Power are just some that you'll find on this soundtrack, and these and many more really help set the overall tone for this movie. I know I've spent a great deal of time talking about the people who make up Desert Blue, but really, that's what keeps me hooked. It's the atmosphere of the movie. There are plenty of picturesque scenes with a beautiful blue sky adorning the vastness of a dry desert. But this is what helps us keep in mind the unrealized water park is still out there, still a dream. And in every scene, we see Sexton's character keeping that flame lit with his father's vision still alive in his eyes, no matter if people think he's nuts or not. Desert Blue is a wonderful little movie. I don't think it ever really got the attention it deserved, but maybe looking back at it now, out of the context of 90s indie film, it may be worth revisiting for you. It charmed my small town heart when I worked at a video store in high school, and it still makes me feel like the world is uh, open to every possibility. It's actually currently streaming for free on YouTube, so grab it while you can. I promise if this sounds like a movie that you would be into, you won't be disappointed. Yeah, I really have to revisit this. I don't remember too much about it. I remember seeing it like, yeah, like I said, when it first came out. But I remember thinking it was like a cool little indie movie with some good performances and some familiar, you know, faces of that era of indie films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a teenager of the 90s yeah this movie hits hits home for me i really love it now i really want to hear what you think about singles i loved i hadn't seen this in forever i loved going back and watching this one same way here i love singles growing up this was a movie that really resonated to me when i was a teenager especially because i was really into the grunge music scene of the early 90s And it's really that when I was going back to revisit this movie, I wondered how that would affect me. And it's funny because I feel like because of that attachment to this movie, a lot of people just wrote singles off as like, oh, it's like this grunge movie era movie. And it kind of just I feel like got washed over of like clumped in with that. But when you watch the movie now, it's the music is is a big part of the movie, but it's not it doesn't feel like it's trying to be something because it it was genuine to that era. Like Cameron Crowe was friends with those bands being a a music critic growing up. I mean, he still followed music and was friends with all of those bands before they blew up. I mean, he was friends with Pearl Jam before they were Pearl Jam. 
And that's why Pearl Jam makes an appearance in the movie and why Mike McCready from Pearl Jam continued his relationship with Cameron Crowe in Almost Famous and Cameron Crowe ended up doing a, a whole documentary on Pearl Jam. But the movie takes place in the early 90s in Seattle during the grunge boom. Very much like Cameron Crowe movies, it, it it's deals with relationships and it's a bunch of 20-somethings. It mainly centers around Campbell Scott and Kara Sedgwick who are in a relationship and there's kind of like a push and pull whether or not they should commit, you know, uh, because they've both, you know, been hurt before, come from a relationship that didn't work out. And then a lot of the characters all live in, in this little apartment complex that's in one of the neighborhoods like tucked away uh, close to the city. Another of the characters is played by Bridget Fonda, who is very much in love with her boyfriend, played by Matt Dillon, who's in the band, and that's his focus. He's not so much focused on her, and she's starting to realize, like, you know, what, what am I doing here? What am I wasting my time trying to impress this guy when he's not putting any of his energy toward me? And then the third story kind of focuses on, and not not heavily, uh, she's a smaller character in the movie, is uh Sheila Kelly, who plays this woman, Debbie Hunt, who is kind of searching for the perfect man. She's like the opposite of the other characters. She will can like go on one date and be like, no, I'm on, on to the next thing. And so she, she, I think, adds a lot of the comic relief. This is a very funny movie. It's I, I would consider it a romantic comedy, but not in the sense of what we feel like romantic comedies are in a genre and this is also a movie where the characters break the fourth wall and they're talking to you mainly the character camel scott but other characters do it too but it happens right away it happens right in the beginning so it doesn't seem awkward uh i also think too the movie has a very distinctive look of movies that we've seen before that kind of deal with these with youth and and like kind of a glow uh, tak fujimoto who did the cinematography for singles um i thought it was like a very smart move using him like he shot some john hughes movies and he shot uh that thing you do that we featured not too long ago and the movie has a very soft look about it but also times has this very fluid where you're like they're falling around the streets of seattle and you're just kind of seeing crowd shots and people moving in and out of restaurants and stores inter, inter, intercut between the characters talking to the screen so sometimes it has like a documentary vibe to it as well but it's a very interesting movie it's it's again put together in a very different way there's a lot of music interludes music is a big part of it there's a lot of live music if you're into that grunge era music uh, there's live performances by Alice in Chains by Soundgarden, music of Pearl Jam, music of Smashing Pumpkins. Pearl Jam actually play Matt Dillon's, they're his bandmates in the movie. Uh, Eddie Vedder is the uh, drummer of the group in that movie. But um, yeah, I can't recommend it enough. It really is a revisiting this movie. I, I loved it even more. It captures that moment in time of like, you know, Gen Xers in their 20s. And I think this movie is like a sort of like this like time capsule of that it really encapsulates that very well so um singles another early camera crew effort i can't recommend it enough yeah i think you're completely right it really does uh capture a a, a time period for that generation too and so much has changed since then so i think that it is important for newer generations to you know, look back and, and if it feels alien, it feels alien. But I mean, it was a completely different time period. It's 
it's very interesting, I think, to look back on it now. If anything, I feel a kinship more with that, even though they were older than me at the time, you know? So those are our picks of the week, Singles and Desert Blue. Um, you might not be able to find those free to stream, but they're pretty easily available. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. So this Murray moment is extra special. Whenever I'm able to involve someone else in this segment, I just feel so grateful. The someone in this case is L.A. musician Lena Geronimo. Lena's been dropping jaws for years, as she's been in the music scene forever now, and grew up with music directly injected into her family bloodline. And she was gracious enough to share the first time she met Bill back in 2010 at South by Southwest playing with her band at the time, The Like. So let's set the scene. Bill had actually known Lena's bandmate, Zeberg, after they met in L.A. at a party way before South By. This was during those few years when Bill was just looking for the party. I remember living in Chicago. It felt like everyone that had a balcony, that they had a sign hanging outside that said Bill Murray crash here. All right, so the band arrives in Austin and Bill starts hitting up Z to see when the like's playing. We played three shows, Lena said, and he kept showing up right when we were done and packing up and being like, no, you know, like losing his mind, but then being like, all right, let's go party. So the first night Bill missed the like show, he was frustrated because of how long it took to get around anywhere, but that didn't stop he and the band from checking out other shows together. Lena said palling around with Bill for three or four days was amazing, but getting him to the next show was the real challenge. We were just wandering around in Austin with him, and everyone stops him. It took forever to get anywhere, but he just loved it, she said. But then, Lana continued, the next night he missed our show, he showed up with a private van that he had rented with a driver and was like, all right, we're going to do all the things. They went to see Lena's friend's band Fool's Gold, which apparently Bill loved, bought their album, and was bumping it in the van afterwards. And of course, he invited aboard every friend of the like that could fit in the van. They then hit up another show, The Growlers, and the like were all right up front in the pit with Bill right by their side. There's more than a few videos of this whole show out there, too. And here's where Fate throws in an extra special moment, which would later be featured in the documentary The Bill Murray Stories. The Like had a tour manager for this stint on the road, their friend Frankie. So Frankie happens to strike up a conversation with a guy who throws the end-all, be-all house party to close out South by Southwest and asked if The Like wanted to play the party. The other girls of The Like had never played a house party in their lives, Lena explained. I, on the other hand, have played many in my day. And we all had our gear with us because we had driven a van out and just figured, why not? Bill immediately saw this as his final chance to see the band before South by closed out. And he told the like to pick him up at the Four Seasons on their way to the house party. So we picked him up in our van. We pull up to the house and he just proceeds to help us load in all of our stuff, Lena said. He just became our roadie boy and even helped set up the drum kit. As one might expect, with Bill making his entrance into the house party, people started immediately texting their friends, so the party quickly erupted into something even bigger than expected. 
Before the like even played, apparently Bill had already been initiated into some fellowship of the guys who ruled the house. And after taking a bit of time to set up, the like was set to play. All smooth sailing, the women in the band are all such pros. But even unforeseen things can happen to pros. And in this case, to Lena's bandmate, Zeberg. At one point, Z, she had this Lederhosen-style yellow leather skirt that Jenny Lewis had actually given her that had these suspender-style straps. Well, they just kept falling, she said. And if you've ever been in a band and find yourself with a wardrobe malfunction or something out of your control that's occurring while you're playing, you either deal with it or try to eyeball the nearest friendly face to help you out. And luckily for the like, their roadie boy Bill was right there for the save. Bill eventually found some random twine and tied it on while we were playing, Lena said. He's just back there fixing her clothes and then grabbed a tambourine and was playing with us for a while. And then the cops showed up and Bill said, let me handle this. The cops had been called, obviously, because of a noise complaint. And Bill answered the door, just jingling a tambourine and the cops' faces, who were stunned at who was staring back at them. Lena said, Bill convinced the cops to let us play our last song, and it was amazing. Maybe you've heard this story before or seen the footage from the show, but if not, it's well worth the YouTube search. I'm so thankful that Lena took the time to divulge all the details to me behind the story. She also told me he came to see her band Raw Geronimo the next year at South by. So maybe if it ever comes up, I can talk to her again about that experience. Lena's current band feels totally rules and is completely my speed. So I hope this Murray moment not only has you seeking out these videos from the South by Southwest experience, but also checking out Lena's various bands. The like is no longer active but was a catchy as hell band. I'm sad to say I never got to see live, but all the members are certainly still active in the music world. And Lena is an incredibly talented multi-instrumentalist with an expansive list of projects over the years. The woman adds a freshly creative vibe to everything, including feels. So let this Murray moment lead you down an enlightening and delightful musical rabbit hole like it did me. Wow, you really went the extra mile with the investigative uh, journalism here. Track somebody down, interviewed them? I tried. You know, in the spirit of almost famous, probably a 15-year-old journalist has a lot more on me in the case of Cameron Crowe. But um, I did try to go a little bit extra for this one. Oh, I love it. And luckily it worked out. It's kind of I'm kind of amazed that it actually did work out. So thanks again, Lena. Well, thank you, Lindsay, for that Murray moment. Anytime. Well, before we close things out here on Almost Famous, uh, did you have any final thoughts about the movie? There are so many thoughts, like every movie that we talk about. But the story that really captured my heart was hearing, we already mentioned how Kate Hudson was nominated for an Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. And when she found this out, she was 21 years old. And in Heathrow Airport, her mom calls her, gives her the news, and they're both freaking out. Her mom, Goldie Hawn asks her like where are you right now what are you doing and she says i'm in heathrow airport goldie's like you're where because when goldie was 21 she found out she was nominated for an oscar while at heathrow airport and just like what a weird coincidence it's just crazy i love that story no it's such a great story what about you justin i just had a quick thing to talk about so there's there's the extended cut that's on the DVD, Blu-ray, and then there's the theatrical cut, the director's cut, extended cuts a little bit longer, but there's some deleted scenes, one scene in particular that is a you can watch it, it's on the DVD, I believe, but it's definitely on YouTube. It's a scene that's 
it's about 11 minutes long, so I can see why they cut it out. Or Cameron Crowe said that it was just too long of a scene. But it's a really fantastic scene. It's a scene where a counselor from the school, one of William's teachers, comes over to their house and he's telling telling William's mom, like, you know, he's got this opportunity to work right for Rolling Stone. And, you know, we really think this would be good for him. And he, But he's going to go on the road and they're trying to convince his mom to let him go. And she immediately just says, let me make it simple for you. The answer is no. <laughs> and and so William tries to convince his mom by playing a piece of music because he said, you know, rock music's not what you think it is anymore. There are literaries who are writing, you know, great musicians. And so he tries to use uh, Led Zeppelin's Stairway to Heaven. He's like, let me play this for you. And so he puts it on the record player and then they're all like four or five of them are sitting there awkwardly while Stairway to Heaven plays in its entirety. And it just, the, there's some humor that builds and builds, but it's such a bold scene to me because it's essentially about eight straight minutes of you're, you're just, I mean, it's a long song and you're hearing it's an entirety, but Frances McDormand gives a great, uh, she, she's fantastic in the scene because you see her She's unaffected by the song and she's kind of slowly getting more and more annoyed. I'm like, oh, why did I have to, you know, why are we all sitting here? Why am I listening? This isn't, isn't going to convince me at all. It's it's really, it, I think it would have been awesome to see it in the context of the film, you know, in that cut in there. But just as a deleted scene, if you're, if you happen to recently watch Almost Famous, especially after listening to this episode, uh, I highly recommend going to YouTube and look up a uh, deleted scene, Stairway to Heaven, Almost Famous. I really enjoyed this scene. And it's funny how it starts off at one point and ends up at a completely different because yeah, at the beginning, she's like, no way, you're not going. And you know, there's, you've got William and then the sister, Anita's boyfriend, who's like, mimicking, like playing drums, like to it, and like really getting into it. And by the end, you know, She's kind of swayed, even though she's yeah. very, very reluctant. But it's a great scene. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, it is so long, and I totally see why they cut it out. But it's uh, they didn't cut it out because it wasn't good. On on YouTube, do they have Stairway to Heaven over it? Because on the DVD, it's like you press play. Yeah, on yeah. Stairway so to someone Heaven. someone must have put it on there because it it's okay. actually plays over it. Yeah. Okay, it's it's kind of fun to just like press play, like you're interacting right, with the movie. Yeah. I <laughs> I like that aspect. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our talk on Almost Famous, the 20th anniversary. If you haven't already, please follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on YouTube, we're on Instagram. Instagram's where we're the most active, and you can look there for upcoming episodes. What's uh, what we're going to talk about next? Also, if you want to listen to previous episodes, for some reason we can't, uh, we don't know why, but a lot of these uh, platforms, they don't have our back episodes. So we have an archive of that on our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com that you can go to. If you're able to, please rate us, please review us. Um, If you want to reach us for any reason, uh, just drop us a line at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. And if you go to our website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com, please check out our merch store. We have uh, merchandise of stuff with our logo on it, some other goodies, posters, all kinds of weird stuff uh, that we dug up so that we can make more money for the podcast. There's also some promo videos that we have that we've done for previous episodes. I love that we have those on the website and they're pretty cute and funny and, you know, short. Yeah. Check them out. Yeah, I think we, you have those on our YouTube channel as well, right, Lindsay? Yeah, 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 I do. And what do we have coming up next? Oh, boy. We're moving I know. into I our... Know. 
boys and berries. We're moving into our <laughs> Halloween, our third annual Halloween October event where we do three instead of doing two episodes for the month we do three episodes and they're all horror or scary movies this is pretty exciting and it did just dawn on me this is the third time we're doing it it's pretty cool yeah and we're starting off with one that is kind of an odd pick i mean i think it's kind of odd but i'm so happy we're talking about it and that is the exorcist three so odd that once we made the decision uh, once I finally convinced you that we should do this for for one, then I immediately, as soon as you agreed, I then immediately tried to dissuade you from us <laughs> yeah, doing you this. Did. So. You sure did. But uh, we're doing Exorcist 3, and I'm, I'm feeling a lot better about it. I feel like this is going to be a, a good one, especially uh, what a crazy backstory this movie has. So Yeah, if you don't know anything about it, that's okay. It's okay. It's a good thing. Be- let us tell you. Yeah, let us tell you, and it is a very accessible movie, too. So next time you hear from us, uh, we'll be enjoying our favorite month, and that is October, and it's cooled down a little bit, and, uh, you know, we're going to carve some pumpkins and do all the things that we love to do in October, and we're going to stretch it out. We're going to really milk this October for all it's worth, because 2020 is really sucked. Can you believe we're still in pandemic times? Thank you guys for sticking with us through through this. And Yeah. Like, I know that our, our episodes, you know, it sounds a little different, but it's completely fine and yep. we're still doing it and so happy that we are. Well, for this episode, it only seems appropriate that we close it out with a rock song. So from the Murray Moments, Lena Geronimo, this is her band Feels with Find A Way. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reaper. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.